0: That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Drive east from Las Vegas towards the Nevada-Arizona border. The winding highway will carry you past the desert's burnt orange cliffs to the top of the Hoover Dam. The view stretches out for miles. But one thing dominates the landscape— It's the impossibly blue waters of America's largest reservoir, Lake Mead.
1: It's dusk now, and some of the sky is blue, but on one side it's got kind of a yellowy, orangey glow. And the defining feature of Lake Mead these days is this bathtub ring, this like thick strip of white that is more than 100 feet tall that kind of shows people where the water level used to be and it's this really stark visual manifestation of the drought that has gripped the region for more than 20 years now.
0: Erin Braun is The Economist's West Coast correspondent and a frequent visitor to Lake Mead. As it recedes, it's laid bare stories about climate, urban development and energy. But last May, the lake revealed something else.
1: It was an old metal barrel, caked with mud. It had been underwater for decades, and some pieces had rusted away just enough to see what was inside. It was a human body. Bones were sticking out, almost like the corpse was trying to crawl to shore.
0: This wasn't a boating accident or a drowning. The body, later named Hemingway Harbor Doe, after the place where he was found, had been shot to death.
1: This was a cold case murder, a crime from Las Vegas's mafia days, uncovered by climate change.
0: I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. This week, we're doing something a bit different. We'll be exploring Hemingway Harbor Doe's murder and how it was revealed. What does a body and a barrel tell us about Las Vegas' past and its future?
1: When the mega drought exposed the corpse, it also resurrected a time when mobsters ran the town's casinos and the desert was their burial ground. In those days, people would sometimes just disappear... The barrel is a relic, a symbol of what Sin City used to be. It shows how dramatically Las Vegas has changed in just a few decades. But it also hints at how the city could evolve again,
0: Erin has been following the cold case for months. She'll take it from here.
1: I'm leaving Lake Mead right now, and I'm kind of four-wheeling it through the mud to get back from the road. And I just realized that because the water level has sunk so low, that apparently the mapping software thinks it's still the lake, and I just look like I'm floating in the middle of the lake. Um, which is crazy, but also, like, a testament to how quickly things have changed out here. I started reporting on Lake Mead a few years ago, not as an amateur detective on the trail of a murder mystery, but as an environmental reporter.
2: The world's greatest power plant goes into action. A dam more than 700 feet high, forming a lake more than 100 miles long. The biggest job ever done by man. Electricity, irrigation, flood control, and water supply for millions for ages to come.
1: In the 1930s, the federal government built the Hoover Dam on the border of Nevada and Arizona. Arizona. Back then, it was called Boulder Dam, and it was an engineering marvel. The
2: praises of the giant construction job, the greatest ever tackled by man, a $108 million project that will harness the Colorado River for flood control and produce 2 million horsepower of electricity. The 726-foot dam towering from the canyon bed of the Colorado is the eighth wonder of the world and is hailed by the president as an outstanding symbol of public works.
1: It essentially corked the Colorado River. Lake Mead started filling up like a bathtub behind the dam in 1935. It's in the Mojave Desert, but that's not quite the middle of nowhere, even back then. An entire town was flooded to create the reservoir. At one point, about 500 people lived in St. Thomas. There was a school, a post office, even a soda fountain. The lake swallowed it all. In 1938, one of the last remaining residents, Hugh Lord, paddled away from his front door. When the water level eventually reached its peak, the town was 60 feet below the surface.
2: This modern city in the desert still startles the old timers who remember the area in the days when Las Vegas was just a tiny mining town. What really put Las Vegas on the map was the construction of Boulder Dam, now known as Hoover Dam.
1: For nearly a century now, the man-made reservoir has supplied the water and hydropower needed to turn Las Vegas from a desert hinterland into a gambling mecca.
2: Today, 16 years after its completion, Hoover Dam is still a tourist attraction for visitors to the southwest. After viewing the dam itself, the sightseer invariably visits one of its byproducts, Lake Mead, the largest man-made lake in the world an especially inviting feature in the middle of the desert.
1: Some say the lake is as artificial as the city that it nurtures. But for better or worse, it helped make the development of the entire region possible. It irrigated the farms of central Arizona and California's Imperial Valley. It fed the growth of the Southwest's big cities, Vegas, Phoenix, Los Angeles, and San Diego. But Lake Mead is shrinking. Scientists estimate that this is the driest two-decade period in the region for more than a 1,000 years. Hotter temperatures due to climate change mean less snow is falling in the Rocky Mountains, where the Colorado River begins. And more water is evaporating before it can even reach the lake. The reservoir's water level has fallen 150 feet since the turn of the century. Rather than drought, or even mega drought, officials now talk about aridification, or the long term drying of the region. Las Vegas are worried. The city gets nearly 90% of its water from Lake Mead. As the reservoir dries up, its shoreline retreats, revealing all kinds of relics that were once deep underwater. St. Thomas has reemerged. A World War II era boat was exposed. Locals sometimes go hunting for buried treasure. And then there are the bodies.
3: The mega drought in the West is revealing a dark side of climate change. In May, the plunging water levels at Nevada's Lake Mead uncovered two bodies, one in a barrel. Las Vegas police identified as a homicide victim.
1: Five more sets of human remains have been exposed since Hemingway Harbor Doe, the body in the barrel, was found. Officials think these victims probably all drowned. The gruesome discoveries aren't all bad news. One was identified as a man who had drowned 20 years ago. That gave his family some much needed closure. But Hemingway Harbor Doe is different.
4: Investigators say the severe drought could lead to more unsettling discoveries, possibly linked to mob
1: activity.
5: As more remains are found, some experts believe Mother Nature has
2: exposed a mafia graveyard.
1: Police used the body's clothes to figure out that he had died in the mid-1970s or early 80s. That was right when the mafia was at its height in Las Vegas. And the details of the crime, gunshot, barrel, desert, all feel like something right out of a Martin Scorsese film. I'm playing something called Wolf Run Gold. It's a slot machine. I'm sure I'll lose my last $10 immediately. Oh, it howls at you. That's exciting. One of the most striking things about Las Vegas is how fast the city changes. Today, its casinos are run by huge corporations and billionaires. The hotels have thousands of rooms, and it's easy to get lost. The casinos don't have windows, so their hallways are like a maze. The loud ka-chings of the slot machines and the thick smell of cigarette smoke can overwhelm. But you're still more likely to see families and bachelor parties than glamorous celebrities. One twenty cents, which is not enough to bet another time. <laughs> so that's it. We're out. Back in the '70s, though, it was more like the 1995 movie Casino with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci.
2: Who could resist? Anywhere else in the country, I was a bookie, a gambler, always looking over my shoulder, hassled by cops day and night. But here, I'm Mr. Rothstein. I'm not only legitimate, but running a casino. And that's like selling people dreams for cash.
1: Martin Scorsese's film depicted, somewhat realistically, the Mafia's reign in Vegas. Gangsters were just part of the fabric of the city. The main characters in Casino were based on real people, legends in the story of Las Vegas.
3: My father was a dealer at the Stardust. Frank Rosenthal fired him. The character De Niro played in Casino. Did my dad have anything to do with the mob? No. He was just there dealing cards, making a living. But was the whole place about the mob? Obviously.
1: Michael Green is a historian at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's also a rare Vegas native.
3: It was our deal with the devil, if you want to put it that way. That uh, if we are going to be economically successful, this is the way we're going. So I think that there were people who knew it and lived with it. I think there were people who just didn't think about it and lived with it. And I think there were people who thought about it, had problems with it, but what could they do about it?
1: Why was the mob drawn to Las Vegas? Money, of course. In 1931, just as the dam was being built, Nevada became the first state to legalize gambling in casinos. When there was a crackdown on illegal gambling in Southern California over the next decade or so, gangsters drove across the Mojave to set up shop in what would become Sin City.
3: Sinatra had a line about his first time on the strip. For five bucks, you got filet mignon and me. So the rooms are cheap. The food is cheap. The entertainment's cheap. Good, but cheap. That's all right. They'll get you at the table. That's where the money's to be made. And that's also where, to be fair, in the case of a lot of the places, they could more easily skim the money.
1: Plenty of mobsters tried to get at that easy money in Vegas. But by the 1970s, the Chicago outfit was the most powerful mob faction there. Gangsters could never get a license from state gaming officials to run a casino themselves, so they used a frontman and his company to buy up hotels, including the Stardust on the Las Vegas Strip and Echo Bay Resort out at Lake Mead.
2: And it seems Disneyland has some influence on the show, too. The Lido de Paris at the Stardust in Las Vegas.
1: The Stardust was a big deal. When it opened in 1958, it was the Strip's largest hotel. Actually, everything about it was larger than life. Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack were frequent visitors. Outside, the neon sign was over 200 feet long. Inside, the showgirls were topless.
2: Las Vegas, Nevada, playground of the Hollywood stars. This sixth edition of the Lido de Paris has a cast of 100, including 40 showgirls. Count them, 40 showgirls. And they play a big part in any French production. These gals really scoot in and out of the scenes.
1: Back in the 70s, the Stardust was run by Frank Rosenthal, the guy who fired Michael Green's father. Rosenthal was nicknamed Lefty, though no one would call him that to his face. He was a sports betting genius and had grown up in Chicago alongside various known mobsters. From his perch at the Stardust, Rosenthal oversaw the skim. This is how the mob made their money. They would skim cash from wherever they could, stealing from their own casinos.
2: The scam at the time of Frank Rosenthal's reign mainly came from the slot machines.
1: I found out how this worked from an exhibit at one of Las Vegas's newer institutions, the Mob Museum.
2: The coins were not counted, they were weighed. What they did was miscalibrate those scales so that they would under-report the actual weight.
1: Mafia operatives took money from cash boxes at poker tables, and even the count room, where all of the casino's winnings were tallied.
3: They would undercount the bills, lose fill slips, take cash out of the drop boxes. (laughs) Suitcases full of cash, millions of dollars over the years, went to the bosses in Cleveland, Chicago, Milwaukee.
1: This was developed with a wink and a nudge and a grease palm. (laughs) Rosenthal wasn't the only person associated with a Chicago outfit who moved west. Jeff Schumacher helps run the mob museum.
5: They put Lefty Rosenthal, Frank Lefty Rosenthal, in charge of uh, the skim at the Stardust Hotel and the other hotels.
1: It doesn't have the usual cafe where you can grab coffee after perusing the exhibits. Instead, the museum has a speakeasy in the basement when I visited, a painting on the wall swung forward to reveal a secret room with a few cocktail tables, just quiet enough for an interview.
5: They sent a second person out, uh, a guy named Tony Spilatro, And Tony Spilatro was more of a street guy, more of a, uh, an enforcer kind of individual.
1: While Schumacher told me about Rosenthal and his enforcer, Tony Spilatro. I could still hear the sounds of bartenders slinging drinks on the other side of the door.
5: Now, Tony took his his job a little more seriously than they ended up liking in this sense. He not only was overseeing to make sure the skin went smoothly and there were no problems, but then he started setting up all these other mob rackets in Las Vegas. He was involved in bookmaking, loan sharking, fencing stolen jewelry... Uh, burglary. He was involved in a lot of different things, including murder, presumably, a lot of things.
1: Tony Spilatro arrived in Las Vegas from my hometown, Chicago, in 1971. In the movie Casino, his character was played by Joe Pesci.
3: I think in all fairness, I should explain to you exactly what it is that I do. For instance, tomorrow morning, I'll get up nice and early, take a walk down over to the bank, and walk in and see you and, uh, If you don't have my money for me, I'll crack your fucking head wide open in front of everybody in the bank.
1: He made up for being a small man with prodigious belligerence. When he was still just a wannabe mobster coming up on Chicago's west side, his gang allegedly put an ice pick through another man's testicles. Then Spilatro reportedly squeezed the guy's head in a vice until one of his eyeballs popped out. For decades, there was this idea that the mob would keep a low profile in Vegas. The logic went that if they needed to kill someone, they should do it out of town to avoid scaring off the tourists and provoking the FBI. Essentially, murder was bad for business. But by the 70s, the mob had gotten brave.
2: From the fabulous jubilation, world-famous discotheque supper club in the heart of the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas, Nevada, the Frank Rosenthal Show.
1: Frank Rosenthal even hosted a local variety show.
3: And now
2: man who's consistently been the highest-priced operating executive administrator in the state of Nevada. The man who's operated four Las Vegas hotel casinos simultaneously. The man Sports Illustrated picks as the country's greatest handicapper,
3: the man, Frank Rosen. Tony Spilatro's
1: reign in Las Vegas was bloody. In 1974, the Los Angeles Times reported that there had been more mob killings and violence in the past 24 months than in the previous 24 years. Although he was never convicted, the FBI suspected Spalladro of about two dozen murders. Could Hemingway Harbor Doe have been one of them?
0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
1: Hemingway Harbor Doe was murdered around the same time Tony Spilatro was brutally active in Las Vegas. So when the barrel appeared last year, Spilatro's was the very first name on everyone's lips. Jeff Schumacher of the Mob Museum says it was a particularly bloody and paranoid time for the mafia.
5: It was a time when the heat was really being turned up on the mob here. And what that meant was a growing number of people flipping, becoming witnesses and also informants and, and, and jurors, frankly. So anybody who was going to cause a problem for the mob, they wanted to get rid of them, Right.
1: The body in the barrel still hasn't been identified, but there are a few front runners for who he could be.
5: Uh, it could be any number of people, right? But what we did is we went and looked at who went missing during that period of time in Las Vegas. And then if they were missing, why did they go missing? And if it has something to do with the mob, like they had some involvement with the Stardust Hotel or some other hotel or some involvement in that pe- the police suspected. So we came up with three names.
1: Many of them connect to Frank Rosenthal, his enforcer Tony Spilatro, and the Stardust.
5: It might make sense that it's, you know, Johnny Pappas because he was involved with the Stardust and then, you know, he disappeared very mysteriously. Um, family members told me that he had uh, some concern about his safety before he uh, went missing
1: Pappas ran the Stardust sister resort at Echo Bay, on Lake Mead. He even owned a boat that he kept at the marina. In 1976, he went out to meet someone interested in buying it, and he never came home. But Pappas wasn't the only one to disappear around that time.
5: There's another guy named Jay Vandermark. He went missing, even though he's from Las Vegas and he worked at the Stardust, and had become kind of a government witness, that was why he was at risk.
1: Vandermark ran the slot machines at the Stardust, or rather he stole from the slot machines at the Stardust. Nevada gaming officials alleged that Vandermark stole at least $7 million from the Chicago Outfits Front Corporation. He fled Vegas in 1976 when officials discovered his racket, and he was last seen in Phoenix that same year most mafia buffs think that the Arizona desert, and not Lake Mead, is probably his final resting place. There are other candidates, too. People who were linked to the mob through the drug trade or brothels and who disappeared.
5: William um, Crespo. Uh, William Crespo was a, uh, basically involved in the drug trade. He had decided to become a witness for the government against the mob. And um, he went missing. We don't know a heck of a lot more about him. We'd like to learn more, but he went missing in 1983.
1: Some families with missing relatives have been asked for their DNA to compare to Hemingway Harbor Doe. But identifying the body will be a huge challenge. So if the person is unknown, uh, there's a few different things
4: that we need to take into consideration. How much of the person is left? Did we receive just a skull? just a torso, just arms and legs, or do we receive
1: a full body? Jennifer Burns is a forensic anthropologist at UNLV. She's not working on identifying Hemingway Harbor Doe, but she often helps the county coroner with difficult cases. I met her at the university, where her lab is filled with skulls and skeletons of monkeys and humans. Dating a body that is decades old can be tricky, especially because of how this one was preserved.
4: So fresh water versus salt water. Fresh water um, typically has a higher bacterial count than salt water. decomposition occurs a little faster. The other thing to consider is the temperature of the water. 80% of decomposition um, occurs based on temperature.
1: Because the temperature of water is typically cooler than on land, especially in a desert— you would expect a slower decomposition rate than for a body buried in the ground. Now we
4: need to consider if the body is airtight in the container. Now, um, if it's not, then the water is gonna get in, the animals are gonna get in. If it was airtight, then water and animals are not gonna get in, and we would expect a much slower decomposition
1: process. But even with a cooler environment and a sealed container, at least initially, it's going to be hard to get a DNA match for Hemingway Harbor Dough. It's just really difficult to get genetic materials out of bone. There's a limited amount of labs who do it, one, for bone, because that's usually
4: what they're going for, is extracting it from bone, because soft tissue, especially in that type of scenario, it probably wouldn't have preserved. So you're going to be going into the bone to see what has not been contaminated. Um, two, it costs money to do it.
1: There's a backlog of DNA waiting to be tested because there are only a few labs in the entire country that do this work. So if Hemingway Harbor Doe is identified, it might not be for a while. And finding out who he is is just the start. Discovering what happened to him, who shot him, and why they dumped him in the lake will take even more work. By the mid-1980s, the FBI was winning its war against the mob. Wiretapping had exposed the rampant theft at the Mafia's casinos. Several Midwestern mob bosses were indicted. Frank Rosenthal survived a car bombing, and a few years later, he moved away to Florida. And Tony Spilatro, He was found buried in an Indiana cornfield in 1986 alongside his brother. His murder is sometimes seen as the end of this era. But it wasn't just that the FBI and local police were cracking down on organized crime. Jeff Schumacher of the Mob Museum suggests that economics also played a role in their downfall.
5: Some people look at it and say, well, it was 1986, because that's when Tony Spilatro was killed and buried in the cornfield in Indiana. That's a legitimate endpoint. But I think an even better endpoint is 1989, and that's when Steve Wynn opened the Mirage Hotel on the strip, and he's paid, you know, spent $600 million to open that hotel. There's no way the mob could have done something like that.
1: When billionaires and multinationals started buying up casinos, the mob got priced out, and the skim got harder to pull off as casino security got better. Las Vegas has always been a transient place. Most people who knew Spallatro and Rosenthal have left town or died, perhaps taking the story of Hemingway Harbor Doe to the grave. The Stardust was demolished in 2007, in true Las Vegas style, with fireworks and a countdown. It was even broadcast on live TV. But the cold case has intrigued all kinds of armchair detectives, from historians to conspiracy theorists to, yes, even true crime podcasters. Schumacher says Hemingway Harbor Doe's reappearance has sparked interest in a time when the stardust was the place to be and the mob was everywhere.
5: I think it's um, kind of a weird sort of nostalgia for a time when Las Vegas was different when it was smaller, when uh, the mob presence actually created this kind of weird allure to Las Vegas, like, maybe I'll sit down at a bar and there'll be a mobster sitting next to me.
1: These days, the mob aren't feared. They're a weird curiosity, a source of nostalgia for people who moved to Las Vegas after its mafia heyday. And that's most people. In 1971, when Tony Spilatro arrived from Chicago, less than 300,000 people lived in Clark County. Today, the population is more than 2 million. There are only a few people left who knew Las Vegas as it was.
2: My martini is a little different than anybody else's. I have Bombay Sapphire Gin, very, very cold, uh, in a martini glass. I have a jalapeno pepper. And a um, a little carrot, a, a pickled carrot that I put in there. And I feel it's very healthy between carrots and jalapenos. And I'm trying to drink more and more and more and get healthier and healthier and healthier.
1: Oscar Goodman is one of them.
2: It seems like I'm the only person anybody talks to anymore when they want to talk about the history of Las Vegas. The last guy around who actually experienced it.
1: Goodman was a defense attorney for the mob. He flew all over America defending the syndicate. He represented Tony Spilatro and Frank Rosenthal. And unlike a lot of people, he remembers Spilatro fondly.
2: He was a, a short fella, a little stocky, uh, eyes of uh, steel, he had a, a very charming smile. I love being with him because with me, he was what, what we call aces. He couldn't have been any better. Uh, than he was with me, he always treated me with respect, he always thanked me, he had very good manners, he never said uh, any uh, epithets or uh, uh, curse words around the the women of my life, my wife, my daughter, uh, my secretary, the the ladies in the office, he was always very, very kind to them and gentle with them. But um, if you ask people whether or not he was a nice fellow, they're gonna tell you no, unless you ask me and I'm gonna tell you yes.
1: Goodman is pretty skeptical that Spilatro or anyone from the mob, was involved in Hemingway Harbor Doe's murder.
2: Well, whenever anything happened here, it was always Tony did it. And um, the the timing uh, would have been appropriate as far as uh, when Tony was uh, a powerful person in the community here. Uh, But uh, that would not be Tony's style. If you're going to kill somebody in Las Vegas, all you have to do is take a little walk about five miles out of town. Find yourself a place where you want to dig a hole and you take the body and plop it in. You don't bother with barrels and taking out to the lake and that kind of nonsense. That's not a mob hit.
1: But maybe he's so doubtful because he's a fierce defender of his clients, dead or alive. In 1998, Goodman gathered his family together to tell them he was mulling a big career change. He wanted to be mayor of Las Vegas, but even his family wondered whether he could get elected with his colorful background.
2: And they said, Dad, there's no way you can win. You have more baggage than the sky caps out of the airport. Uh, they, they didn't think that the public really understood what I was doing when I was representing people and protecting their rights, making sure that prosecutors didn't abuse their office and uh, used only constitutionally obtained evidence. Uh, They thought that the public just didn't get it, but they were wrong.
1: Goodman served three terms. He's 83 now, and his wife, Carolyn, is in her third term as mayor. When she leaves office next year, the Goodmans will have been running Las Vegas for a quarter of a century. In retirement, Oscar Goodman has become a kind of wisecracking ambassador for the city, Everyone knows who he is. His photo is all over the Mob Museum, which was his idea, after all. And he's reveling in his mafia lawyer days. He often hosts a dinner theater in the steakhouse of the Plaza Hotel and Casino. It's called Oscars, naturally.
2: Uh, I am going to ask anybody who does not have a collared shirt on, uh, whether they are uh, with uh, the Gaming Commission or not, to leave... It's really outrageous. You know, I work on this damn speech.
1: For an hour or so, Goodman regales his guests with stories of his famous clients. There's a martini in front of him, of course. And on the night I was there, the audience was filled with politicians, gambling officials, and journalists who had all come to pay their respects. Tony Spilatro looms large at these events. Literally. There's a giant statue of him and Goodman in the entrance to the restaurant.
2: Does everybody know who Big Chris was? Nobody knows who he was. Who, who, who's the, who knows who he is? Who is that? Where are you from? You don't know who Big Chris is. You, you wouldn't be here if you knew who Big Chris was.
1: For a few hours, under the crystal chandeliers, It feels like old Vegas isn't so dead after all. But things change fast here in the desert. Today, Las Vegas is facing another reckoning.
5: Folks, for decades, climate deniers have blocked any meaningful progress and just pretended there wasn't a climate crisis. But guess what? This year, nobody can deny there's a crisis. We have drought. The Colorado River is becoming a stream.
1: The Colorado River is drying up. Its shrinking shores are revealing dead bodies and the precarity of the city's water supply. Vegas isn't alone. 40 million people rely on the river. The Biden administration has urged the seven Colorado River states to find a way to conserve as much as a third of the river's average annual flow. That would be almost as much as California's entire allotment.
3: Long-term, but we're gonna have to do massive conservation in order for us to keep that water behind Lake Mead.
1: Ruben think- Gallego is a Democratic congressman who represents Phoenix. Like Las Vegas, the city is growing. And fast. Arizona has junior water rights compared to its big neighbor, California. So, officials from the state are worried that they're the ones who could face big cuts.
3: Like, in my opinion, we as Arizona, we have done our part. We, you know, stopped, we followed farms, we did everything we can. um, And California really has been the water hog here. When I say California, the, the Imperial Valley.
1: So far, the states haven't been able to agree, so the feds may make the decision for them later this year. Some worry of a water war, or at least a lot of water litigation, as the states fight over who should give up a bigger share. Water, or the lack of water, has long defined the arid west. But overuse and climate change have combined to create an existential crisis. The future of the region is at stake. How much can the suburbs of Vegas or Phoenix grow when water is limited? Should they expand at all? Does it make sense to keep growing really thirsty crops here? Southwesterners tried to use Lake Mead to tame the desert, to turn it into booming cities and fertile farms. Now, the desert is reasserting itself and locals are searching for answers to these really tough questions. Two lifetimes ago, St. Thomas was swallowed by Lake Mead. One lifetime ago, the mafia was paranoid and violent, and Hemingway Harbor Doe ended up murdered. In the next lifetime, Las Vegas again might look very different.
0: This episode was made by Erin Braun and Stevie Hertz, with sound design and mixing by Nico Rofast and fact-checking by Erica Shin. Harriet Noble, John Shields and I edited the episode. Thanks to the Plaza Hotel and the Mob Museum in Las Vegas for the use of their recordings. You can read Erin's piece accompanying this podcast, called Secrets of the Shallows, if you have an Economist subscription. Go to economist.com slash USpod for the best offer. And if you have thoughts on the episode or theories about who Hemingway Harbour Doe is, please do get in touch. The email address is podcasts at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll be back with more Checks and Balance next week.